Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and we're back, folks. It has been a while. I have been very busy, but I am committed to punching out some more content now that things are settling down a little bit. I have a, I have a new daughter, and she is adorable, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of kept me busy lately, uh, but I'd like to really start ramping up, getting into this, this creative hobby that I have been doing. I really want to see where I can go with it. But today, just as a return episode, you know, there's a lot going on with this Ride of the Rohirrim movie that's going to be coming out, so I thought maybe it would be cool to do an episode on Helm Hammerhand. And, you know, if you know me, if you've been listening to the show for a little bit, I love context. I really like to provide context for everything. I actually, uh, I took a Clifton Strengths test and one of the results that I got was I like context for things and I like to give people context. So I'm going to tell you about Helm Hammerhand and, and hopefully we can we can get a good episode out of that. But I'm going to provide the story of Rohan, a general summary of the story of Rohan up to the point of Helm Hammerhand. So yeah, that's, that's what I'd like to talk about today. And uh, without further ado, let's jump right into it. So where do we start? If you want to know a proper history of the Rohirrim, you have to start with the Aothade. This was a group of people who were an offshoot of the noblemen of Rovanion who were allied with Gondor during its history. Now, there's a story from the lore where one of the kings of Gondor, he actually is, uh, his mother is from Rovanion, uh, because one of the kings of Gondor marries a Rovanion princess. The people of Rovanion, that made them kind of intimately connected with the royal line of Gondor. And, and the Aothade were an offshoot of the noblemen of Rovanion who were essentially pushed out of Rovanion by the Easterlings and they moved kind of into the the vales of Anduin area kind of outside outside Moria sort of in between Mirkwood and by the Goldenwood area where Galadriel is these are people that are living in that area and they see themselves as sort of kin with the with the Gondorian royal line so there's positive relationships there. And the Aothade end up moving north from the Vales of Anduin. They go up to almost right underneath the Grey Mountains. And that's when they start becoming known as the Aothade, which essentially just means land of the horse. And they are led there by a leader of these horsemen, and his name is Fromgar. And he has a son named Fram. And Fram, so that's Fram, son of Fromgar. Fram has this sort of really super interesting story that I love about his conflict with a dragon of the north. This dragon's name is Skatha. Um, Fram ends up, uh, and this dragon, by the way, is sitting on a dwarven horde. And it is bothering the people of the north. It's putting his people in danger. And Fromm ends up slaying this dragon. And the people of the Aothade establish a capital in the north. They call it Frommsburg. They name it after Fromm. And it's not 100% confirmed, but apparently uh, Fromm, after slaying this dragon, Skatha. And it's it's really great when you read it because it, it just echoes of this sort of northern spirit, almost Beowulf-type lore when you read about this interaction between Fromm and Skatha. 
After Fram slays Skatha and claims the treasure hoard for the people of the Aothade, the dwarves essentially demand it back because it was theirs and it was taken from them. However, Fram earned this hoard, so he doesn't send the treasure hoard back. He sends the teeth of the dragon and he sends it to the dwarves with this sort of mocking statement of like, uh, I'm not going to send you back your hoard, but uh, check these out. You don't have any jewels like these. I forget the exact wording, but it's it's something along those lines. And the dwarves are very upset by this. And according to legend, they apparently kill him. But this is something that isn't exactly confirmed by the text when you read it. But what we do know is, is that Fram, he slays this dragon, he has a capital city named after him, and he has a son by the name of Leod. Now, Leod is a leader of the Aothade in the north, and he is slain by what is known as the first of the Meras. And the Meras, if you remember, is the breed of horses where Shadowfax comes from, eventually. This breed of horses is said to, according to a legend have come from Valinor. It is said that the Vala Orome had brought them over. Remember that Orome is, is held, I, I can't recall the name that the people of Rohan give to him because it's it's a different one, but it is Orome. Uh, the people of Rohan hold Orome in high regard. So these horses were, were present in the north and they were wild. They were extremely hard to tame. And Leod, the son of Fram, tries to tame one and it ends up throwing him off and killing him now this is where our hero comes into the story the establisher of rohan itself errol he is the son of leot the king who has just been killed by this wild horse uh, he's only 16 years old so they call him earl the young and what does this young 16 year old do as soon as he's crowned king so everyone expects him to take vengeance on this horse that just this this wild, untamable horse that just killed his father. And he gets a hunting party together and he goes out to find this horse and he finds it. And all of his companions expect him to, you know, do what is necessary, take vengeance. But instead, he calls out to this horse and he says, come hither, man's bane, and get a new name. And he says, Felleroth, I name you. You loved your freedom, and I do not blame you for that. But now you owe me a great guild, and you shall surrender your freedom to me until your life's end. And the horse surrenders to him, and he mounts him, and Felleroth becomes his first horse and the first of the Meiras, which is the name that was given to these horses that were descended from the horses of Valinor that would be in service to the kings of Rohan, all the way up to Theoden and Shadowfax. So there's what's going on in the north. You have these horsemen. They are called the Aothade, Land of the Horse, which is the name that was given to the people as well. They are living with their capital in Fromsburg. Earl the Young is their king. He is a strong, stout individual. And they're, they're chilling. They, they're living good up in the north. So how do these people get brought into the greater story that is everything that's going on in Middle-earth? So what happens at the same time as Earl's crowning, essentially, or a couple years after, uh, Gondor faces a new threat. They are a threat from a people group that are known as the Balkoth, which is essentially a group of Easterlings that are kind of a, a ragtag collection of individuals that aren't, they aren't as well equipped as Easterlings who have attacked prior, but they are vast in number and they start 
swarming into the lands of Kelinardon. Kelinardon, for those of you who don't know, is the northern section of Gondor, which will eventually become Rohan. So they attack Kelinardon, and this comes at a time where it's right after the great plague that Sauron, in his guise as the necromancer, had spread all throughout Middle-earth. This great plague had greatly depopulated Gondor, and they didn't have enough soldiers to defend the vast amount of territory that had been traditionally what we know as Gondor in its, in its height. And Sirion is the current steward of Gondor, and he sees that this, there's this huge attack coming in from the Balkoth in the north. So he sends out messengers, and he's like, okay, you know what? There's a group of people in the north. We know them. They're called the Aothade. They have helped us in the past. They see themselves as, as kin to the now dead Gondorian line of kings, which because we know that the, the last king of Gondor had already ridden to Minas Ithil to challenge the witch king to a duel. He never returned, so we can safely assume that he was very unsuccessful in that duel. Sirion is the current steward of Gondor, and he's like, hey, we're stretched thin. We need help. I need to reach out to these brave horsemen of old from the north. So he sends a group of messengers, and I believe there's about a dozen, or there could be, I think it's six groups of two, but I could be wrong. You know, you can fact check me on that. I believe it's six groups of two, and only one of these messengers makes it there. And this messenger's name was Borondir. So Borondir gets there. He he finally meets this fierce, brave, um, warlike, but noble people from the north that everyone in Gondor knows about, but they haven't had contact with for some time. And he gets to the king, Errol the Young, and he, he pleads with Earl to come to the rescue of Gondor at this time. You know, he doesn't exactly make them a promise of anything. It's really just a plead in past friendship. Like, hey, you know, we've worked together in the past. Can you please come help us? The people of the Aothade do have reason to come. You know, they don't want their land overrun by Easterlings, and they have reason to hate the Easterlings because they know that they were, them and their kin, were driven off out of Rovanian by the Easterlings in times past. So they do have reason, they have some reason to come. And Errol listens to the message of Barondir, and he considers it for some time, and he thinks on it, and then he finally says, if the Munberg falls, whither shall we flee from darkness? So that's his decision to come, because the Munberg is... Minas Tirith. That's what the people of the Aothade refer to Minas Tirith as. So he's basically saying, hey, if the White, Fa if the White Tower falls, where, where would we go if our lands were overrun? Like this is, he acknowledges that Gondor is a force for good in the world, and he chooses to come to their aid. So Errol sets out with about 7,000 armed horsemen. And it's said also that he had a couple hundred horse archers with him as well. He sets out on the way to Kalinarda, down through the Vales of Anduin, right by Mirkwood, right by the Golden Wood, to get to this land that will eventually become Rohan, right? He's on his way, and it's said that the shadow coming out of Dol Guldur, which, remember, that's where Sauron is at this point. He's in disguise as the necromancer. This great shadow comes out from Dol Guldur, and it's oppressing the army of the, of the Aothade as they come. And there starts to be a lot of fear. And then it's said that a mist comes from the direction of the Golden Wood. This bright white 
mist that kind of chases off the darkness that's coming out of Dol Guldur. And we know, of course, and they even mention it in the story, uh, I believe it's Barondir, he says that the Lady of the Wood is on their side. So this, this white mist comes out, and, it, and it's interesting because... You know, this story kind of doesn't have anything to do with Galadriel at all, but it also does, right? Because Galadriel is such an important key part of this story. And even here, you know, just an off mention, she is assisting the Aothaid in their journey to aid Gondor at this time. So it's a really cool thing. You know, I love when I, I love Tolkien's works because it's it's so intertwined together. All of the characters are so closely knit and all of the events that are happening are so tightly wound together. But yeah, moving on so that they're able to get through that dark shadow coming out of Dol Guldur. And they reach a situation in Kalinardan where the northern army of Gondor is completely surrounded. They broke and ran, and you can correct me on the geography if I'm wrong on this, but I believe that they are backed up against a river that is kind of surrounding their back end on both sides. And there's an army of orcs that have teamed up with the Balkoth that cross the river into Kalinardan. So they're essentially just waiting to be decimated with their backs against the river. And lo and behold, the Aothaid, these brave men of the north, they finally arrive, kind of like the winged hussars, and they smash into the enemy and completely rout them. And it's a, it's a sweeping victory for Gondor and the Aothaid. Now, I'm just going to briefly summarize what happens next. If you have not read Sirion and Eorl in the Unfinished Tales, you really need to, because the relationship that the steward of Gondor, Sirion, has with Earl the Young is a really beautiful thing. It's kind of like a father-son relationship. They become very close. And the way Tolkien writes this out with the events that immediately precede this battle, it's it's really a special thing. Um, So highly recommend you read it if you haven't already. That's in the Unfinished Tales. But just for the sake of this podcast, I'm just going to briefly summarize it. Uh, The steward of Gondor essentially decides to relinquish the lands of Kalinardon to Earl the Young. What happens is, I believe he says three months after, after the battle takes place, you know, Sirion and Earl are basically standing there on a field of victory. And Sirion says, Earl, I am giving you Kalinardon Nardon to basically police over the next three months. Can you please protect and defend this land for me? And I will contact you in three months for your reward for this great and valiant effort, this rescue of Gondor. Thank you so much. I'll see you in three months, which is kind of an interesting thing to say. You know, it's it almost sounds rude to me, but Errol trusted Sirion, and he trusted that Sirion was going to deliver a great reward. And he does, a reward that was above and beyond even his wildest imagination. They actually, Sirion takes Errol to the grave of Elendil, where they both swear oaths to one another. And he offers Errol Kalinardon to have as his own kingdom for him to sit as a king in. And the only stipulation of this offer for the rescue of Gondor is that Gondor and what would eventually become Rohan, the people of Earl the Young, Earl Lingus, uh, the sons of Errol, would always be friends with one another. And they would come to the aid of one another and never attack the other. So it was basically, thank you for your rescue. Here's the land. 
You can rule it the way you wish. Just promise to always be my friend. And Errol accepts this offer. And again, I, I'm I'm summarizing a really amazing, you know, story. Like you gotta, it, it really... It's really a, a special couple of passages where he, he leads Earl up to the grave of Elendil and they're reading what's on the grave and they're getting into kind of like why the grave was put there and what the maintenance of the grave and the rules have been for visiting the grave. It's, it's really interesting lore. It's a really interesting lore dump that you should read, but for time's sake, I'm just going to gloss over it. I wanted to get into the oaths that they both give to one another. I'm going to read those word for word because I think they're really special. And I, I do want to make a point about the oath that Syrian swears to Errol. I'll start with the oath of Errol. This is after Syrian has made such a generous offer to him. And again, he basically, you know, Errol iterates in this story like, oh, man, I didn't expect anything like this. What what a rich reward you're offering me. And he accepts and he swears this oath in the language of his people, the language of the Aothade, which in the common speech is interpreted, Hear now all peoples who bow not to the shadow in the east by the gift of the Lord of the Munberg. So, Sirion, he's the steward of Gondor, Lord of the Munberg. We will come to dwell in the land that he names Kalinardon, and therefore I vow in my own name and on behalf of the Aothade of the North that between us and the great people of the West there shall be friendship forever. Their enemies shall be our enemies. Their need shall be our need, and whatsoever evil or threat or assault may come upon them, we will aid them to the utmost end of our strength. This vow shall descend to my heirs, all such as may come after me in our new land, and let them keep it in faith unbroken, lest the shadow fall upon them and they become accursed. That's Those are strong words. A lot of people might look at what Theoden did in the return of the king and say, man, that's huge cost, you know, that you would come to the battle of the Pelennor fields and lay not only your own life down, but the lives of so many of your soldiers just to save, you know, a kingdom that isn't even yours. It's because of those words right there. It's because of the oath of Aeorl. You know, he said, let him be accursed who doesn't come of my heirs who don't come to the aid of Gondor in the future. So the people of Rohan took this oath very seriously. And then Sirion, the steward of Gondor, responds with his own oath. And he responds in Quenya, which I find, you know, really cool. He responds in Quenya and his oath is translated to... This oath shall stand in memory of the glory of the land of the star and of the faith of Elendil the faithful in the keeping of those who sit upon the thrones of the West and of the one who is above all thrones forever. So, Sirion, the steward of Gondor, just invokes Eru Iluvatar in this oath that he makes. In this, the offering of Kalinardon and his promise of friendship to the people of Earl the Young, the people of the Aothade, in this offer of friendship, he invokes Iluvatar. Which is, again, uh, if you haven't been listening to this podcast up until this point, it's the it's, it's Tolkien's monotheistic creator god of the Middle-Earth universe. Another... Another thing that just really 
grinds my gears when a bunch of like lefty Tolkien dorks they try to say that there's no there's no god in this story there's no there's no religion you know and yes yeah, it's, it's not not it's not religion isn't the right word but the, these people are invoking what they believe about their their teleology this is a very present aspect of this story and it'd be like, oh well it's not in lord of the rings it it's it's the entire story and Iluvatar is mentioned in the appendices of Return of the King. So that's another checkmate for those those people who try to, you know, they try to take the the theological themes out of Lord of the Rings. And it, it's really, it, it's a really subversive and uh, malicious thing that these people do to, because they want it to, they want the square peg to fit in the round hole. They want, they want their Lord of the Rings they, the way they want it. And we can't let those people do that. So... You have these two individuals, they make this oath. Quick summary of that story. I'm not going to, you know, I won't get more into that. But yeah, that's that's basically how the relationship between Gondor and Rohan starts. It was that big section, which was Northern Gondor, a province that was called Kelinardan, and it gets handed over to the Eothade, to Errol the Young. Now, again, in the Unfinished Tales, there's, there's some good bits of information for you geopolitical nerds. There's some good bits of information about some of the stipulations of this deal, like kind of in detail, some things like, Gondor retains control of Angrenost, which is the the name that the Gondorians gave to what would eventually become Isengard. But at this point, during this agreement between Sirion and Earl, they maintain control of Isengard, which is again, they call Angrenost. And Angrenost uh, ends up being... Well, I'll get to that in a little bit. But another stipulation is that travelers should be free to use the the Western Road, you know, whether they are of Rohan or whether they're from Gondor. There shouldn't be any restrictions on travel, uh, even though, of course, Rohan is free to govern themselves in the way that they seem fit. They need to be, you know, they need to allow people of Gondor to pass through. Rohan basically ends up gaining everything pretty much north of Minas Tirith and west of the Anduin River. And yeah, and the kingdom of Rohan is established. Now, Rohan is actually, it's actually what the Gondorians call Rohan, but also, you know, a lot of people of Rohan will also refer to themselves with the Gondorian name, but the Gondorian name is, that's not their default of what they call themselves. What they call themselves officially is the Earl Lingas, or sons of Aeril. You remember Theoden yells out forth Aerolingas, you know, that's that's what their that's what their default for what they call themselves is. You know, typically in Rohan when they're talking about themselves, they're not going to use the term Rohan. However, it can be interchangeable in in their language just because they do so much dealing with Gondor. And Rohan to Gondor essentially just means horse lords. So Gondor refers to them as the Horse Lords or the land of the Horse Lords. All right, now that we've gotten into the establishment of Rohan, the home of the Horse Lords, the Earl Lingas, the sons of Errol, now I'm going to get into the line of kings of Rohan up to the character that we're going to talk about today, Helm Hammerhand. And, you know, maybe I'll do line of kings up to Theoden after that and, and talk about Theoden a little 
little bit. I don't know. I don't think that that would be a great episode. But yeah, I'm going to give you the line up to Helm Hammerhand. Earl himself, Earl the Young, he ruled until he was 60 years old, and then he died in battle against the Easterlings again. Um, And this is because although he was given the land, it wasn't quite officially secure. You know, there were still wars to fight after Sirion uh, relinquished Kalinardon to the Earl Lingas. Uh, they needed to shore up the borders. They needed to establish and maintain hegemony over that region. So that's, that's basically what he spends his reign doing. But he continues to live up to his moniker of the young because until he dies in battle at 60, he maintains this, this young vigor. You know, his, his hair remains blonde. He's still this, got this fierce young man's spirit about him until he is slain eventually. So that's kind of why he's Earl the Young, because he ascended to the kingship at a young age, but also he maintains this young fire up until his death. The second king of Rohan is Earl's son, Brego. He is the second king, and he completes construction of Meduseld, which is the seat of the Rohiric throne in the capital of Edoras in Rohan. So he kind of, he establishes that power seat there. And he ruled until he was 58 years old. He was also father of Baldur the Hapless. Um, and he died at 58 because he, he really died of a broken heart. He died of grief. He did end up driving the Easterlings completely out of his new kingdom, so that was that was a great benefit to his reign. He was able to officially establish full control over the region. And for those of you who are not familiar with his son, Baldur the Hapless, I highly recommend that you listen to my podcast, The Dead Men of Dunharrow. Baldur, his son, was the prince who drunkenly stood up and said that he was going to walk the paths of the dead, and he leaves and he never returns. So... Listen to that episode if you have not already. He has another son. The second son of Brego becomes king, and he is known as Aldor the Old. He is king for 75 years, and he lives to the age of 101. And he drove the Dunlindings out and subdued the ones that still were able to be basically absorbed some of the Dunlindings into the kingdom of Rohan, basically just subjugated them uh, and drove the more violent factions of Dunlindings out. So again, we have Rohan really carving out this region that they're ruling and establishing themselves as the power seat of this area that used to be northern Gondor. Aldor's son ascends to the throne, and we don't we don't really know much about him. His name's Freya, and he lives until he's 89 years old. So... We can assume that it's a very safe and prosperous reign. You know, I think Tolkien not really writing much about this, particularly Freya. We as the reader are left to assume that not much happened. You know, everything was under control and there wasn't, you know, no news is good news, basically for Freya. And he lives to 89 years old. Now we have Freya wine. Now it's, it's interesting. We have three kings here that Tolkien doesn't write much about. Freya, Freyawine, and Goldwine. Freya lives to be 89 years old. Freyawine lives to be 86 years old. And Goldwine lives to be 80 years old. So we almost have this like, like maybe Freya's reign was really stress-free. 
Freya Wines Rain, 86 years old. Maybe it's pretty stress-free, but maybe a little bit more stressful than Freya's was. And then you get to Goldwine and he dies at 80. So maybe there's this descent of troubles that happen, but we don't really know. We're just left to assume because there's not much written about them. And then Dior, who is the son of Goldwine, he ascends to the throne and he only lives to 74 years old. Now, during Dior's reign, this is when the Dunlendings actually occupy Isengard officially. All right, so now we're back to Isengard. Now I'm going to give you a brief history of, we're going to take a pause from the line of kings and we're going to give just talk real quick about what's been going on at Isengard during this time. So Deor ascends to the throne and the Dunlendings invade and they take and occupy Isengard. Now, what had been happening with Isengard is it was kept by Gondor during the deal between Sirion and Errol. Uh, I said that already. You know, they, they, it maintains the name of Angranost. It's not Isengard yet. It was guarded by basically what was a hereditary captain. Uh, it was a, a Gondorian family and, you know, one father would be captain and he would give the captainship to his son. They were tasked with keeping and maintaining this fortress. And what happens is the hereditary line dies. They die out so... The people basically elect this new captain who is not related to the line of the hereditary captainship. And at this point, you know, there were so many Dunlendings living in the area of what eventually becomes Isengard that they begin intermarrying with these Gondorians who were in Angranost, you know, guarding what would become Isengard. They begin intermarrying with these Dunlendings. So the loyalties change. They shift. Eventually, there's so many Dunlendings living within this fortress that the people just eventually overthrow the, the, the random family that was given the captainship. They overthrow them and then swing the doors open for the invading Dunlendings because they're their kin. You know, they are, they're already family with the people living outside of the walls. So you have this decay kind of of the nobility, the Gondorian nobility that was charged with protecting this fortress. And the Dunlendings come in, they take over the fortress, they slaughter anyone who resists them. And Gondor at this point, they're so stretched thin that they can't do anything about it. What eventually becomes Isengard is so far away that it's not even really in their purview anymore. If there is concern about the Palantir that is kept in the Tower of Orthanc. It's not really expressed, to my knowledge, in the text of the stewards. And even if they were concerned, they wouldn't be able to do anything about it anyway because they just don't have the resources to take back the fortress. But what we do know is that the keys to the Tower of Orthanc, uh, again, that's the tower within what becomes Isengard, the keys to this tower are actually in the safekeeping of the steward of Gondor. So it's essentially this extremely hard to get into tower and the Dunlendings are unable to do it by all whatever means that they try they can't get into the tower in the center of this ring but even if you can't get into the tower of Orthanc itself it's still an extremely key fortress to holding power within the region so this becomes a huge problem and thorn in the side of the kings of Rohan and it's a huge problem for Dior the king of Rohan whose watch this happens under even though it wasn't necessarily his responsibility 
to take care of the fortress of Angranost. It's, it's a huge problem for him because the Dunlendings are executing these raids of Rohan's west side and they go out on these raids and then they retreat back to the fortress of Angranost and, you know, they, they, they won't be dislodged. So Dior is dealing with this and he dies at 74 years old. His son Grom continues to have to deal with this problem and he doesn't solve the problem. And then comes Grom's son, a man by the name of Helm. So we've reached Helm. Helm Hammerhand, the namesake for Helm's Deep. What does Helm do about these Dunlendings? All right, so Helm, he inherits a land in turmoil from his father. There is open war with the Dunlendings who have lodged and occupied themselves in this fortress that eventually becomes Isengard. He inherits the crown at age 50, and it says that he is a grim man of great strength. So you have to think that Helm is a, is a seasoned warrior. He's been fighting the Dunlendings his whole life and then finally is given the crown at age 50. You have to assume that he knows much of war. So he inherits the crown and we're immediately introduced in the story to, you know, we don't we don't know a whole lot about Helm's youth. We just really have to assume things, but we're not given really a whole lot of background into what his life was like up until that point. But we're immediately introduced to this man by the name of Freka. Now, Freka is an implied lord. It says that he is a member of the king's council. Doesn't necessarily call him a lord, but it says that he is the head of a large region on uh, Rohan's border, a border region with the Dunlendings, which is in the West March of Rohan. And he claims to be descended from King Freowine. So that's a, a past king of Rohan. So he claims to be the blood of a king of Rohan. And he's a rich man. He has a lot of resources. He has a lot of influence within the court of King Helm. And he claims this descendant from Rohan royalty. However, there's a problem with that because one, he has dark hair and the, the royal house of Rohan, most of the time they're, they're typically blonde. You know, the men of the north had blonde hair. And people say that he, you know, there's whispers in the king's court that this man Freka, who claims this, claims to have royal blood is actually, you know, mostly just a Dunlending. You know, he, most of his blood comes from Dunlending. So interesting. It's an interesting thing there. Tolkien doesn't state whether it's true or false. It just says that this is what people say about him. And he's also, Freka is also apparently an annoyance to King Hell because the, the text states that he really disregards, he doesn't give much regard to King Hell. He doesn't really care about the, the ordinances of the king. And if you look at kind of where Freca's land is supposed to be on the map, it kind of makes sense because he's, he's far off from the capital. It's still technically Rohan, but it's far in the west and it, it's in an area where you can see him kind of getting away with doing whatever he wants and not having a lot of checks and balances to stop this, this rogue character. But he is a member of the king's council, so he's clearly a very important person in the land and has a lot of influence. And he shows up to this meeting of Helm's council and it says, I, I believe that the texts use, uh, he, he would show up to council when it suits him. So for this meeting of the king's council, it suited him to show up. And Freka boldly asks 
for King Helm's daughter's hand in marriage to his son, Wolf. And I'll, I'll read you the quote here. So Freca, in front of all of the other influential members of this council, asks the king for his daughter's hand to his son, Wolf. And Helm, you know, stands up and he says, You have grown big since you were last year, but it is mostly fat, I guess. And then it says, Men laughed at that. For Freca was wide in the belt. Then Freca fell in a rage and reviled the king and said this, Old kings that refuse a preferred staff may fall on their knees. So, you know, I read that and I thought about that quote for a little bit because it's it's a threat. You know, it's clearly a threat. But what exactly is he saying? Freca feels that he's offering the king a good deal here. He's saying old kings that refuse a preferred staff. So I feel like Freca sees himself in this moment like, my son deserves your hand in marriage, and I'm offering you a lifeline here because your land has seen some rough years, and I can offer you strength, I can offer you a staff to lean on, and you're rejecting it. So, since you won't lean on the staff I'm offering you, you might fall to your knees. So, the king hears this threat, and he basically just ignores it, you know, in front of everybody else. He's like, yeah, 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 okay. We can talk about your son later. You know, we have more important matters to discuss. And the council begins, I don't know, they probably have some dinner or something. And then after everything ends, Helm makes Freca walk outside. He basically says to him, like, we don't have brawls in the king's palace. I'm going to make you walk outside. So he leads him outside. And of course, Freca realizes here that he bit off way more than he could chew, insulting the king and, or threatening the king in front of the council like this, because his men kind of are like, hey, what are you doing? You know, like, you don't, don't hurt him. And then Freca and his men see that they're all very outnumbered in that moment. So they just acquiesce to what the king says. And they all allow themselves to be led outside. And it says that Helm leads Freca outside and says, Now, Dunlanding, you have only Helm to deal with, alone and unarmed. But you have said much already, and it is my turn to speak. Freca, your folly has grown with your belly. You talk of a staff. If Helm disliked a crooked staff that is thrust on him, he breaks it. So, and then it says, with that, he smote Freca such a blow with his fist that he fell back stunned and died soon after. So this is kind of, you know, where not just this story, but this is kind of uh, a great representation of Helm's life and why he's known as Helm Hammerhand. Like this man is able to just kill people with blows from his fists. You know, that's how strong he is. And it's at this point that not only does he kill Freca, but he names Freca's son as well as Freca's close kin as enemies of the state, essentially. They're outlaws within his land. So then about four years goes by and all just chaos breaks loose. You have Corsair pirates who not only attack Gondor, you know, they're conducting raids on Gondor, but they are also coming up into the rivers that are in, in Rohan's west marches. And then you have Easterlings cross into Rohan from the east, and they're causing trouble over there. And then you have Dunlandings who join in with the Corsairs who are attacking up, they're raiding up the rivers into Rohan. And as it turns out, these Dunlandings who join, they take advantage of the situation and they join with the Corsairs. They're actually led by Freca's 
son, Wolf. So Rohan is in a is in a serious situation because they're being attacked from all sides and these are very personal beefs. You know, these these people want Rohan wiped out and Gondor cannot come to Rohan's aid at this point because one you have the Easterlings who are coming in from the east and essentially creating kind of a wedge between Rohan and Gondor. And Gondor is also dealing with these raids in the south from the Corsairs who are, you know, they're ascent pirates from Umbar, probably some black Numenorians or with them so these are very capable enemies you know i feel like the corsairs were painted as kind of like dirty ruffians in the peter jackson movies and there's so much more than that you know the this is a very capable raiding fierce enemy so everything just explodes and the whole land falls apart helm hammerhand king helm he's defeated in open battle and forced to retreat back to the fortress of what the Gondorians called Aglorand, which they relinquished to Rohan in the deal between Sirion and Aeril. And that's, of course, what eventually becomes Helm's Deep. But at this time, it's referred to by the Rohiric people as the Suthberg. So Helm, he is defeated in open battle, and he is driven back to the Suthberg, and he is held up in this fortress that eventually becomes Helm's Deep. Wolf, with his army that he's now at command of, he takes the capital of Rohan. He takes Edoras, and he slays Haleth. Haleth is Helm's oldest son, and Haleth falls literally on, I, I think I think the text says, on the steps of Meduseld, like down to the last man, just trying to defend the the capital and he slays the king's son and he sets himself up on the throne of Meadowsel and starts calling himself king this wolf character so wolf declares himself king of Rohan and Helm is pushed back into this fortress that eventually becomes Helm's Deep Helm's oldest son dies Helm's younger son Hama is with Helm held up in the Suthberg. And then what is referred to in Rohan as the Long Winter begins. This is called the Long Winter because snow, you know, not not just emotionally because Rohan went through such a tough time, but snow actually covered the ground of Rohan from November to March. So November to March, there is just basically a permanent snow covering on the ground. There was problems with food. People were starving inside the Suthberg. And Hama, uh, Helm's second son, actually ventures out against Helm's wishes to go and try and find food. And he disappears. He never returns. So you kind of just make the assumption that he was either ambushed by Dunlendings or he died of hypothermia somewhere. Um, so he doesn't come back. So now Helm is basically just, he, he has no heirs. His line has ended and he is in a complete state of mania and desperation. You know, he doesn't care about anything anymore. He doesn't care if he lives or dies. He's just in this mindset of berserker rage, this, this Helm character. And in his desperation, it says that he became fierce and gaunt and you know, the the whole time this is happening, by the way, he's held up in what eventually becomes Helm's Deep. He's under siege this entire time by the Dunlendings. And what eventually ends up happening is the people who were laying siege to this fortress, they couldn't get in. And it becomes difficult for them as well. You know, they're struggling to find food. They're They're afraid of this long winter that's taking place. And it says that Helm 
starts making these harries out. He starts leading men out into the field and sneak attacking these Dunlandings who are sieging the fortress. And he kills a lot of them. He takes a lot of them to the point where it actually becomes like a legendary story. These besiegers are just in complete dread of the lunatic dethroned king that now resides inside the fortress. And it says that he would go out by himself, clad in white, and he would kill men with his bare hands. And then they say that if he did not bear a weapon, that that no weapon could kill him. So they just feel like there's this berserker that they can't kill that keeps venturing out of the fortress to slay them in the night. And it said men men would flee when they heard his horn. So he would blow this horn and he would come out of the fortress and just start killing people. It says, Helm had a great horn and soon it was marked that before he sallied forth, he would blow a blast upon it that echoed in the deep. And then so great a fear fell on his enemies that instead of gathering to take him or kill him, they fled away down the coom. Now the coom was like the Helm's Deep is kind of like built in a, a crevice that, you know, I could be wrong on this, but I, I believe it was like elevated. So people would just these Dunlandings would just run when they heard his horn because he had grown into kind of this like mythic figure at this point during the long winter. But then it says, one night men heard the horn blowing, but Helm did not return. In the morning there came a sun gleam, the first for long days, and they saw a white figure standing still on the dike alone, for none of the Dunlandings dared come near. There stood Helm, dead as a stone, but his knees were unbent. Yet men said that the horn was still heard at times in the deep, and the wraith of Helm would walk among the foes of Rohan and kill men with fear. So there you have it. You know, Helm dies at this point, but he dies standing straight up, hunting for Dunlendings to kill outside of the gates of what eventually becomes Helm's Deep. And this legend becomes a rallying cry for the people of Rohan. Helm becomes a hero. Helm Hammerhand, this this mythical man of grim strength that just was able to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. And, And it adds to the lore of Helm's Deep. So when the people of Rohan would use Helm's Deep as a protective fortress, it kind of had this mythic aura around it. Enemies felt that Helm's ghost kind of stalked the areas around Helm's Deep and would slay any besiegers on behalf of the kings of Rohan. It's a, I love this story. I really do. So, uh, you know, before I comment on how much I love this story, let's just finish it off. All right. So after the death of Helm Hammerhand, his nephew, his sister's son, Freyloff, uh, a man by the name of Freyloff, he basically leads this, you know, he and some other people of Rohan were taking shelter in the mountains during this this crisis of the throne that was taking place. And he decides to lead a bold, last-ditch effort to take the throne back from this wolf character. And him and a few comrades basically sneak into Meduseld. You know, they sneak into Edoras, they get into the throne room, and him and his companions are able to slay Wolf. They kill Wolf, and then Freyloff reclaims Rohan for the Erlingus. And, you know, he reclaims the throne, and he actually takes power himself. So you have Helm's nephew kind of establishing this second line of kings that eventually leads to Theoden. You know, Helm's nephew is Theoden's ancestor. 
Also, at this same time, eastern Rohan, I believe, floods, and it floods so much that it actually creates a serious problem for the Easterlings who have come over the river to take the section that they were in. So they, the Easterlings flee. The Easterlings leave Rohan. Uh, Gondor is finally able to send aid. So Gondor sends aid and they are able to secure the land of Rohan again. They are able to firmly establish Helm's nephew's Freyloth's uh, grip over the country. Freyloth with the aid of Gondor are actually finally able to dislodge the Dunlindings from what eventually becomes Isengard. And it's also during this time, so, so you be, Isengard finally falls. You know, the Dunlendings are no longer in control of it. It's back in the hands of Gondor. It's back in the hands of the steward of Gondor. And it's during this time that coincidentally, Saruman shows up. He shows up in Rohan and he sings the praises of uh, how brave the people of Rohan were during this tumultuous time, and the steward of Gondor gives him the keys to the Tower of Orthanc. He basically says, oh, welcome, Saruman, man of wisdom. Uh, You'd be a great candidate to be the caretaker of what eventually becomes Isengard at this point. And Freyloth, king of Rohan, is he loves this idea because he's like, okay, great, finally we have a, a responsible ally who has control over Isengard. Um, so that's that's uh, that's what sets up the geopolitical situation of how Saruman, how he receives the Tower of Orthanc, which of course ends up being a huge mistake. But yeah, that's the uh, story of Helm Hammerhand. You know, I love this story because I read it and it really just carries that spirit of a Nordic mythical tale. You know, you have a character of great strength and great fire and they have, they have this determination to them, this against all odds drive that keeps them going. And of course, you know, a lot of them end up being tragic type characters. So I see Helm Hammerhand's story as something very much akin to a lot of, you know, the the Icelandic um, legends that we get about these, these, these pagan characters that have a lot of drive and end up ultimately failing in the end at whatever they were trying to accomplish. Helm Hammerhand was unable to keep his throne. And he was a man of strength, and he becomes this mythical hero to the people of Rohan. But ultimately, he suffers great tragedy in his life because of his unwillingness to bring himself under control. I think it was a very rash decision for him to kill Freka. I think it ends up really affecting him negatively. And yeah, you know, we can say that Freka deserved it for sure. And I'm not saying that I... You know, I don't love that Helm just punched him out out there on the field. But I think this story very much rings true of of, of that. You know, what's the lesson here? You know, where did Helm go wrong and, and why did all this stuff happen to him? You know, why did he why did he lose both his sons? Why did the line end with him? Clearly, he was a rash man and he was a 50-year-old king who was making young man kind of decisions that ultimately lead to the downfall of his line but there's still there's a there's a a grace that Tolkien extends to his character right because he ultimately ends up becoming a hero to the people of Rohan because of his determination because of his fierce grit you know because of his unwillingness to just lay down and die within the walls of Helm's Deep you know he died standing up very much a, a Boromir type character but yeah 
thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm happy to be back making content again. Thank you for putting up with my, I feel like I have a very nasally sound right now. I've, I've had some nasal stuff going on, so don't let that distract you. Let me know what you think of this episode. Um, you know, send me an email, drop me some comments on Twitter. Really appreciate when you guys listen to it. Yeah. And that's all I got.